Hey, welcome to night school. Uh, and uh, this is going to be a, a pretty quiet episode. I have very limited energy right now, limited limited lung power as well. Whether it's the pollens or you know some sort of allergy or the coroni, the coroni vi, the coroni vi. Whether it's that or not, I don't know. I mean, I'll try to be. Uh, not not melodramatic about it and just do this episode because everybody's feeling that everybody's feeling the every little people are very aware of their bodies right now I think that's incredible I think it's incredible how aware people are how aware people become of their bodies during a time of biological crisis bio crisis the coronavirus bio cry that's how we shorten things around here. The coronavi biovi. That's going to be the name of my child. First name coronavi, middle name biovi. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, I'm going to get into the, the topic here. And I, I've been thinking again about synchronicity. And it's been less of a topic for me lately. It's It's been on my mind less, the idea of synchronicity. And by that, I mean it's probably been like, what, two episodes since I've talked about it. But no, it's it's been something that I've been less conscious of lately. But the reason why synchronicity has come up so much in my life is because it was really one of my first experiences with something that felt like it transcended the mundane reality I had lived in my entire life. And by mundane, I don't mean negative. I just mean that the things that you take for granted about reality, the things that just are and you never question them, you never have a reason to question them. I mean, I think that's what I mean by mundane. And experiencing synchronicities... in my late teenage years, was one of the first really strong experiences I had where I thought, okay, there's something else going on, and even though I was interested in these other things before I had these experiences, and maybe I had those experiences before but didn't acknowledge them, maybe I didn't need to. You know, I was talking recently about how in childhood, you know, the default state of childhood, barring some kind of trauma or disaster, is harmony. And I think in, for that reason, as a child, you're less likely to need to experience or interpret or whatever it is that synchronicities do. I think that it's it doesn't need to be a part of the childhood experience. Like, oh, I'm aware of something else out there. I think that's something that happens when the dissonance of adulthood starts to creep in and of course it creeps in before you're an adult because 18 is a fairly arbitrary age i mean i think 18 was chosen for a reason as the threshold of adulthood but it's not like it's exact and it's not like it's universal for everybody Um, but you know i started to experience serious synchronicities around the age of 19 and fortunately, I experienced many of them with a friend of mine, my friend Miles, who I reference on here a lot. So that it's helpful when you have a confidant, and uh, it, especially if they're different from you. 
You know, I, I have a lot of close friends who were very similar in a lot of ways, but there are just fundamental differences, and I feel like that's helpful. I've never been somebody who wants friends to be a mirror image of me. I think, if nothing else, I like friendships to feel like we're different sides of the same coin. You know, we, we're the same currency, but we're different sides of the same coin. Uh, but fortunately, I had a friend, and we experienced a lot of very strange synchronicities and immediate synchronicities. There was really something to it during a certain period where it seemed like we couldn't talk about something without it manifesting, or we couldn't just have a, a conversation, a, a humorous conversation. I mean, we're not talking about people sitting around trying to cultivate profound spiritual experiences. We're talking about people sitting around talking shit, you know, just having casual conversations, joking around about things, and, and those things either appearing in the form of synchronicities or other just strange epiphanous events. And it's good to have a confidant with that stuff, because it's not something you can just go tell people. It's not something that you can just broadcast. And you do have to keep it close to home sometimes, you know. You can't just broadcast it every time it happens, because people will think you're either crazy or annoying or both. Uh, if you talk about, oh, you wouldn't believe this meaningful coincidence, and then... People want to challenge that or dismiss it, or it's just not interesting to them in the same way that people don't want to hear about what you dreamt last night. Most people don't want to hear about your dream. Uh, in, that, in that same way, hearing about a synchronicity just isn't interesting to a lot of people unless they directly experience them. Uh, and many people, their response to a synchronicity is to either challenge or dismiss it. And it's not just the scientific, atheist-minded person who does that. It's also common in deep, deep within spiritual practices. You know, you'll hear this very austere reaction to synchronicity where it's like, don't, don't read too far into that. Don't pay too much attention to that. And there's value to that. There's a lot of value to that. Don't hold on to these experiences. Don't hold on to this phenomena. And, yeah, that's. I feel like there's a lot of validity to that approach of not holding on. It's, a, it's similar to, you'll hear it um, with meditation, where if you've ever had visions during meditation, you'll hear, don't hold on to those visions. Don't inflate those visions. You know, don't reject them. Don't don't completely, don't throw them away necessarily, but uh, don't put too much value on those visions. And it's, I feel like it's the same thing for synchronistic experiences. And you'll see this sort of austere attitude towards synchronicity, both deep within spiritual practice and its opposite. It's alleged opposite. I don't believe these things are actually as different as, as they're believed or said to be. But you'll obviously see it with, with more people who are opposed to, to spiritual thinking, people who will call it magical thinking. It's funny how that's considered some sort of psychological malaise, I guess you could say. Magical thinking. Magical thinking is one of the, the checkboxes on this list of, you know, uh, potential symptoms... And it's like magical thinking. That sounds great. Magical thinking sounds wonderful. 
But these things need to come to you naturally. You you can't force them. And I think that's why they impacted me at a certain point in time, because I wasn't seeking these exact experiences. I wasn't trying to create these experiences. I was looking for something. I was open-minded, but in no way did I design the outcome. And as I was getting into it, it's great when you can experience, experience these things with other people because you have a confidant and you can try to make sense of it with another person. And you also know you're not crazy because in addition to other people thinking you're either crazy or annoying, you might accuse yourself of being crazy. You might think that you're crazy if you experience something that nobody else is experiencing and you're unable to talk about, you know, incapable of, um, you just don't have anybody to confirm it with. I think it comes down to confirmation. So did that really just happen? I mean, it can happen when you just see something really weird out in public. You know, if you see a person behave really strangely, you want somebody else to be there with you. I mean, when I was visiting a friend in L.A. a few years ago, I woke up early and went on a walk. This was in Santa Monica. And I was just strolling you know, around. I was walking by this apartment complex. And I look over and I see this guy about three stories up. You know, it had, They had an outdoor walkway to go up to each apartment. And I hear a scream, a woman scream, and then... I see this guy do a swan dive off this third floor. You know how, like, with those outdoor stairways, how each level there's just, like, a little kind of just, like, an area where you can sit or stand. It's almost like a little porch. Uh, he he took a dive off the, the porch on the, the third floor, a swan dive, down to the concrete parking lot, and I didn't see him land. But... I kept walking because I was just like, I don't know what to do about what I just saw. And they obviously don't need me because I I know there are other witnesses. I heard a woman scream. And she wasn't screaming because she was being attacked or anything like that. She was screaming because some guy she knows, probably her boyfriend, just did a swan dive off of this third floor onto a concrete parking lot. And... A few minutes later, I walked back the way I came, and I saw him laying on the ground, like, tilting his head up, and people were attending to him, and then I heard an aid car, but I just, because I, and I went, I went back, and my friends, they were up, and I told them about what I had seen, but I felt crazy, because, I mean, it was so bizarre to witness that, and who knows what the story was, I mean, who knows what happened, this guy took a swan dive into a parking lot, and, I mean, he, he fucked himself up. I mean, he wasn't dead. I know that because I saw him moving. He didn't look like a person who was dying, but he must have broken a number of bones. I mean, this was not—I mean, he did a front flip. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about a swan dive. If you've ever played Tomb Raider growing up, you could make Laura Croft do this swan dive, and it was almost like that. It was like where he dove out, and his body was completely straight. His body was erect, and he basically did a a front flip with his body completely stretched out. And it was just, who knows, maybe he got in a fight with his girlfriend, and that that was just his dramatic reaction. 
who knows what the story is. But the point being, I felt crazy because I was the only one who witnessed this. And, you know, I went home, I went back to my friend's house and tried to tell them about it. And they were just like, whoa, that's insane. But I still, I felt like a crazy person myself because that's not something you see all the time. Uh, So when you have somebody else with you, like if I had a friend with me who witnessed that, it would be different because you're like, okay, I'm, I didn't just hallucinate what I, what I just saw. And it's the same thing for what some might call paranormal experiences. I don't think synchronicity is paranormal. I think synchronicity is very normal. And who are we to call something paranormal? Um, but I won't get into that, uh, mainly because I don't care. I don't care what term you want to use for these things. Um, it's about the experience, the sensation involved with them, not what you call them. And synchronicity for me, having not thought about it as much lately, but still recognizing its importance in putting me on a certain path, maybe. I don't feel like it put me on a path, but I do feel like it opened my mind and kept my mind open when I experienced these things. And in many ways, I've made decisions in life based on synchronicity. Not that synchronicities have told me where to go or what to do, but when I've been experiencing them, especially during those periods when they happen in in close, you know, frequency, and you'll just have those experiences, adventures, I would call them. They're adventures, and they do often coincide with life adventures, where you go someplace, or you do something out of the ordinary, where you feel a certain calling. And I don't feel like that's coincidental at all. But, you know, and many people will cite synchronicity as part of their path, people who feel that they are on a path. Let's call it a spiritual path. You know, I, there's a part of me that cringes every time I use words like spirituality or just describe something as spiritual, spiritual experience. But I don't care, and I'm not afraid to use that word. And I'm also not afraid to leave it fairly open for interpretation because there's no way I could possibly define it. Um, so let's just say spiritual path. Since I'm so unafraid, I might as well just use the word spiritual. These spiritual experiences, synchronicities are, are common. And I believe a lot of different types of people experience them and interpret them in different ways. Someone who's Christian, someone who goes to church every Sunday, their experience with synchronicity is pretty simple because they just they can say, that's God talking to me. That's God communicating with me, with us. Somebody of any faith can do that. And if you don't have a faith, like I didn't and don't, I would say I have faith, but I don't have a particular faith. Uh, But when you're coming from that point of view, you don't necessarily know what to do with it. You don't know how to interpret it, and you can kind of spin your wheels just thinking about, what what does this experience mean? And no matter how much someone says, uh, you know, don't pay attention to it, ignore it, early on you're going to do that. You're gonna, it's it's going to matter to you because it is out of your, it is out of the ordinary. It does transcend your mundane day-to-day life. But uh, I, I've been thinking about it lately and I had a tendency to think about synchronicities in that plural sense as if despite being part of the same phenomenon, these were individual events 
where each synchronicity was its own thing. So have you ever experienced synchronicities? Have you ever experienced synchronicities? But to even refer to it as synchronicities says something about the way that I thought about it, the way that I talked about it. Whereas now, I just I simply think about it as synchronicity. It's a process. It's a process that could be called synchronicity. And I no longer have any questions about its meaning, you know, because I used to think, okay, these synchronicities are showing us that things are more connected than we realize. But what does that mean? And it doesn't need to mean anything more than that. It's showing you that things are more interconnected than you realize. And if you want to read into it further than that, that's fine. But the experience of synchronicity, the wholeness of synchronicity, you know, I talk about the wholeness a lot these days, and synchronicity is leading you toward that realization. It is showing you these interconnected ideas and events. It is showing you that the world is connected in more ways than you realize. And it does it using both silly things and profound. You know, it can, it can, the range of synchronicity you can experience can be the silliest, goofiest, pettiest, most unimportant thing, or it can be something truly life-changing and profound. I've had the silliest, dumbest synchronicities happen. And you can see it's hard for me to shake that idea of this plural synchronicity, and it really doesn't matter. Um... But it, you know, my the way that I see this ha- is much larger now, and where I see, I don't see these as independent events. Um, I see these gl- these are glimpses. Each synchronicity you have is a glimpse into the same thing. You're you're glimpsing the same thing that is always happening and always has been happening, but you're just having a. It's almost like if you're you're driving and there's a mountain off in, on the horizon and you see that mountain for a second and suddenly the trees surround you. You know, you're you're on the highway and suddenly you're driving through a bunch of trees, the forest. You can't see the mountain anymore and then the trees clear and you see the mountain again. And then you're driving and oh, there's a bunch of buildings around you and they're blocking the mountain again. And then you get through the buildings and then you see the mountain again. You're not going to be like, wow, I sure am seeing a lot of mountains today. You know, you're going to know that there's one mountain over there. And I believe the same thing is true with synchronicity, where even though you have these individual coincidences, these individual events, these specific epiphanies, you're really glimpsing the same thing the whole time. It's just obscured. You just don't have access to it uh, during the the interim, I guess you could say. And uh, with that idea, though, you know that I was getting at earlier of like, how am I supposed to interpret this? You know, because that's what I spun my wheels on. I tried not to. I tried not to spin my wheels on it, but you inevitably do, because when you experience a strange synchronicity, you can't help but be excited, and you can't help but think about it. And that's one thing I'll say, too, about the sort of austere attitude toward these things, where I completely understand why certain disciplines say, don't read too much into that, don't get too attached to that, don't try to find more in that than is there. But at the same time, I don't like this idea of 
don't get excited. This sort of mean-spirited, like, how dare you get excited at some strange event that transcended your mundane existence. You know, get excited about it. I think have some fun with it. I think having fun with... You don't need to clutch these things like... It's not dangerous. You know, everything can be potentially dangerous. Everything your mind does, everything your mind focuses on can be used for, you know, sinister purposes. I mean... Or it can it can make you delusional. You know, you can, someone can get very delusional. I mean, it's not. It's speaking of meaningful coincidences. It's not a coincidence that schizophrenics experience synchronicities at a alarming rate. And there's something to that. And it's not alarming. I mean, it's just that uh, if you've ever known somebody with schizophrenia, they are pretty much their currency is synchronicity, basically. And everyone is like, oh, they're crazy, so it's it's totally imagined. And while they do have problems, very severe problems, someone who's truly suffering from schizophrenia has a problem. There is a problem there. There's no dismissing that. But that doesn't mean what they're experiencing is totally imagined either. And in the Arab world... That's a funny phrase that people use, the Arab world. In the Arab world, uh, people with schizophrenia and delusional mental illness are described, and of course it's in their in Arabic, but they're described as being closer to God. And so, you know, in the Arab world, you're encouraged not to worry about those people in the same way we do here, not to think about them in the same way. I mean, I'm I'm painting with a pretty broad brush here. I've never been to Arabia. Uh, Arabia. Uh, but it is interesting that they refer to them that way. And that's and it's interesting to me because when I heard that, I was like, holy shit, that's pretty close to how I view schizophrenia as well. I see schizophrenics as being closer to God, and in being closer to God, they do have a certain a certain madness. I mean, that's, you know, with whatever wiring is off, that's going to produce madness in somebody. And so it's easy to say, oh, everything they experience is delusion. But not necessarily. Not necessarily. But it's too, it's too difficult to really un- unpack that, as people say. Let's unpack this. Let's unpack the idea, you know, that, you know, when NPR did that episode about unpacking uh, a schizophrenic's relationship to God, you know, when they did that in between Tiny Desk episodes? No. Uh, But uh, it, it goes back to this idea that, you know, you're getting glimpses of something, and I think that getting too many glimpses might indeed make you crazy. I mean, if you've ever, you know, I'm not manic depressive, but I have experienced manic states, circumstantial manic states. And when you're in that mode, when you're in a manic state and you're experiencing synchronicities, you can feel yourself on the edge. And so somebody who's wired wrong, somebody who already has deeper issues, you can see where they're on that edge all the time, so inevitably they're going to fall off, it seems. But yeah, getting away from the idea of seeing synchronicities as these little private viewings of separate events and seeing it as synchronicity, which is a larger process that you are getting glimpses of, but 
beyond those glimpses, it is a whole thing. Uh, that's one way that my thinking on synchronicity has shifted. And very recently, it's only recently that I've thought about that, partially because I haven't thought about synchronicity very much lately. And I think in taking time away from it, in not caring about it, it gave me a certain epiphany about it. And that happens a lot. When you take a, a step away from something, you have realizations that you wouldn't have had if you were just constantly spinning your wheels about it. It's why people say, if you're trying to like solve some sort of issue or problem, it's why people say, get up, take a walk. You'll figure out that synchronicities are, are not plural, but one. And, you know, when I used to spin my wheels about it, too, I was always looking for something more. Like, oh, there's something more to this that I'm missing. There's something more that the universe is trying to communicate. And, you know, I've recognized now that it might very well just be letting you know that things are more interconnected in ways that you can't normally see than you've ever realized, than you're normally able of comprehending. And I think that what I was getting into a, a few minutes ago before I derailed was just that it, it's not necessarily, you know, not every, not every synchronicity is biblical or obviously profound. You know, I've had truly silly, stupid things like synchronicities could be I, I had one where it involved you know like fi, like a like a fireworks brand and then the name of that brand appearing minutes later in a completely unrelated situation i mean that's just a, a silly example that i'm not even explaining properly but it could be you know it could basically be the dumbest joke in the world it could be the silliest little thing but it could also be something biblical you know, a synchronicity I had a few years ago, a couple, two or three years ago, was, you know, I'd listened to a podcast where they were talking about the burning bush, and uh, then uh, a, f uh, uh, a friend emailed me, and he'd, he'd been listening to another podcast that talked about the burning bush, and he brought that up, and then I was watching a game show, I believe that night. And one of the trivia questions, the answer was the burning bush. And then I believe it was the next day. This all happened in the span of about two days. And then the next day I went into a random grocery store I don't normally go into. And I went into the restroom and they were playing a song which turned out to be Jewel. And she was singing about the burning bush. And I didn't know it was Jewel at the time. I looked it up later. And so there was this quadruple synchronicity involving burning bushes, and it all happened in the span of two days. And it's not like I was out there looking for these things. And, you know, it being a biblical reference, I could go crazy with that. You know, you can see where if you already were on a very thin tightrope, you know, if your if your mental health was already on a very thin tightrope, you can see where, you know, a quadruple synchronicity involving the burning bush could easily make you fall off. It could easily make you just spin out. It could make you burn some rubber at the very least. But I knew not to go too far with it. I think that it was so obvious, that experience, and I don't, if you've noticed, I don't really talk about individual, I don't, I don't really explain individual synchronicities on this show, partly because I think it is something that you talk about with your confidants. This, this isn't a dream journal. It's not a synchronicity journal. And to be honest, I don't directly experience them that often anymore. And I think part of that's because I don't need it. 
I think that synchronicity appeared to me, synchronicity showed me that there is this greater interconnectedness, and that was its role, maybe, maybe, you know? It leads you certain places, it allows you to come to certain uh, it, it opens your mind at the very least to the interconnectedness of everything. And speaking of Jewel, speaking of Jewel, I feel like this is a good segue because the way synchronicity is illustrated in Hinduism is through Indra's net, which is a net of jewels. It's a network. You know, there's a reason. It turns out there's a reason why... The word net is in the word network. And so it's this network of jewels. It's a net of jewels. There's a reason why a net is such a, a great illustration of this. Because uh, there is separation. I mean, I don't, I don't want to describe what a net looks like to you, but it's like there is separation between everything that makes up the net. It's not all just one big ball of cloth. It is all connected, but there there are there is distinction. There are these pockets to it, these holes... But Indra's net is just this infinite number of jewels, and they're all interrelated and interconnected, and, it's il- and that interconnection is illustrated by the way that they reflect each other. Each jewel is reflected in every other jewel, and every other jewel is reflected in that jewel. So, you know, you can see where that's almost a perfect illustration of synchronicity, and it shows, too, that people have been thinking about this forever. People have been aware of this forever. You didn't need the internet to understand Indra's net, even though they sound really similar. Internet, Indra's net. Uh, I'd never actually thought about that until this second, that those sound similar. It's funny. But you can see where we've always found ways of illustrating that interconnectedness. And it's profound. The jewel example is wonderful because it's just that reflection. And that's all you have to see it as. Things reflecting off one another. Um, And with Indra's net, I don't know, I don't have too much more to say about Indra's net. I just think that that's a, a really perfect illustration. It's a perfect way of understanding this. And... I believe that when you experience one jewel reflecting off another, which is what a synchronicity is, it leads you toward understanding that interconnectivity. It leads you to understand that everything is part of one thing. There is a wholeness. And that's it's interesting that people, I think, are having some epiphanies right now, too, with the uh, coronavirus. They are realizing the interconnectedness between people. It's something that they've given lip service to. Because that's what I did for many years. You know, I was giving lip service toward this idea of interconnectivity and wholeness. Wholeness. But I didn't feel it. I didn't really feel connected. I didn't really feel that everything was whole and everything was connected. And then suddenly it did. You know, and I didn't force it. I think, once again, you have to take a, a step away but I knew not to leave it alone, too. When I, when I first started, you know, because, you know, anytime you go down a certain path, I mean, it, you don't have to be a spiritual person. You don't have to be on a spiritual path to recognize that everybody is interconnected. You don't have to, you know. And, I mean, you can see that right now with the coronavirus, where everyone is very aware of the interconnectedness with people. And in taking a step away from each other, we are actually connecting with each other further because we realize that this 
thing, this unseeable thing, preys upon that. And I, you know, and, and this goes into another thing I want to say real quick. I'll try to be quick. I've been doing these Facebook live streams. I did a few the other night when I was feeling better. And uh, I like it. I, I don't think anybody gives a shit. And I don't care that, that people don't give a shit. But I just, it was something I just wanted to do because I've never done any kind of live broadcast. And I like the pressure of that. I didn't feel that I was able to talk as naturally as I would like. And not that this is my natural voice either. You know, not that I talk to my friends in the voice that I do on this show. I, I talk much more like a valley girl normally. But, you know, in, in doing this live stream, it was just a good exercise. I did a few of them, late at, a couple late at night, one during the day. And just doing something live, that's very new to me. I've never done that before. You know, this show is obviously pre-recorded, and while I don't edit it, while I don't, you know, chop it up, I leave all the warts, you know, it's warts and all, that's very much my approach to this. Uh, doing something live was fun. You know, it keeps you on your toes. Um, but why am I talking about live streaming? Um, I don't remember. I don't remember why I decided to share my, my recent live stream experience uh, but just people are realizing the interconnectedness. Oh, what it was is is on one of those live streams, I was talking about, I, I posed the question, should I hate the coronavirus? Should I hate the coronavirus? And I wasn't so much posing that question to myself as much as I was everybody. And my answer was no. It's easy for me to answer that question. No, I don't hate the coronavirus. I don't like it. I don't want to encourage it. But I, I don't know that I'm capable of completely understanding why it exists or what its purpose is. And because of that, I can't hate it. And, and even if I did know its purpose, even if I knew that its purpose was completely sinister and nefarious, the coronavirus is here to kill humans like you and everyone you care about. You know, even if that was communicated to me, I still can't hate it. And someone could say in response to that, well, nobody you know is in the hospital on a respirator right now. You're, you haven't been taken out of commission. It hasn't killed somebody you love yet. You know, or, you know, let's not say yet, but just it hasn't killed somebody you love. And I have a counter-argument to that, which is not that anybody's actually arguing with me about this, but I, I, I think about these things, and I was like, well, you know, a few months ago my mom died of necrotizing fasciitis. And that has a very sinister name. It's comically evil-sounding. Like, I can't think of something more stereotypically evil or sinister-sounding than necrotizing fasciitis. And after my mom died, I never once thought, I hate necrotizing fasciitis. I never, it never even crossed my mind to think that way. With all the profound sensations and feelings I had in that experience, including grief, including sadness, I never once thought, I hate that infection or I hate that disease that killed my mom. And it'd be total, you have a total 
free you have free reign to hate the thing that kills your mom. You have total free reign to hate that thing. I mean, especially when it's called necrotizing fasciitis and it does what it does to the human body. It's sort of like cancer. You know, people say there's there's those bumper stickers that say fuck cancer. And I completely understand if cancer has impacted your life in some way. I mean, my sister had breast cancer. It's totally understandable to hate cancer. And uh, but going back to, you know, coronavirus, you know, and relating that to what happened to my mom with this rare infection that killed her. It's like at, at no point did I think at no point did I have any animosity toward that thing. And I still don't. And so in the same sense, I don't feel that way toward the coronavirus, even though it's impacted all of our lives in this way, even though it's killing people and greatly hurting them. I can't say that I hate the coronavirus. I I don't hate the coronavirus. I don't love it. I don't want to encourage it. I think we should protect ourselves from it. But I don't hate it. And I think that's something important to acknowledge right now. I think it's important to acknowledge that, that I, you know, do you hate this thing that is impacting everybody's lives? Do you hate it? I don't think that... I think I think that to hate it is to be manufacturing some sort of emotional response that doesn't need to doesn't need to be a part of this. It doesn't even need to be a part of this. I think that will limit you to feel that way. But if somebody wants to hate it, if somebody's loved one dies of the corona, uh, I think that they have the right to. And I don't think anybody will will, will challenge that. I, you know, I'm certainly not going to say, well, have you thought about not hating it? You know, that's not my place. But I can say for myself that I don't hate this thing. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, going back to, you know, synchronicity and, you know, I don't know where I'm going with this. You know, I... I think just recognizing that it is something that communicates the interconnectivity, it communicates the wholeness to you, and if it does nothing more than that, that's pretty fucking important. That's pretty incredible, that it can take the silliest things as well as the most profound and throw them at you at times that just feel strange or you get a sensation. Because I experience coincidences all the time, and I don't even think about them. You know the difference. There's a sensation attached to a synchronicity that isn't there when you experience an ordinary coincidence. And being able to make that distinction is interesting. Because there's a sensation involved. In so much of our lives, there is this sensation to certain experiences. There's a sensation to certain thoughts. And in the same way that you can learn something, but every time you learn something, it's not an epiphany. And I'm not just talking about when you read a book. You can learn things by just going out into the world. You can hear something from somebody that benefits your life, and it's interesting, and it changes your view of the world in some way, big or small. And you don't think, wow. You just go, oh, I learned that. I learned that. But you wouldn't call that an epiphany. Yet sometimes somebody will say something in just the right way, and your mind is blown. It's an epiphanous moment. So having an epiphany isn't just learning something. It isn't just realizing something. 
an epiphany is some form of activation, and I, I use that term a lot, activation. Something feels activated in you when you have an epiphany. It's like something was always that was always there is suddenly potent. It is suddenly in use. In, you can put it to use, put it in practice. Um, and I, I think synchronicity is very similar, where it's, it's almost like something is activated and the sensation associated with that makes it distinct from just an everyday normal coincidence. And that's difficult to explain. You can't measure that. You know, you can't measure that. It's just something that you feel, and nobody can challenge it, and you shouldn't try to challenge other people with it either. I think that's an important part of this, too, is, you know, I'm someone who, I'm not out to change anybody else's view. I'm not out to convince anybody to think the way I do, and in fact, I wouldn't recommend it. I wouldn't recommend thinking the way I do, because I feel like I've skirted some dangerous territory, as far as, you know, talking about like skirting the edge and some people fall off, you know, I, I feel like I've skirted some territory that I could have gotten lost in, if nothing else. And that goes, and, and I'm not just talking about like self-destructive thoughts or anything like that. I'm talking about even interesting things, even things that are just uh, the product of an open mind. I can see where I easily could have gotten lost, where I've skirted certain edges in thinking certain thoughts. And I feel fortunate that I, I haven't fallen off, or maybe I have. Maybe somebody else would say, well, hey, you know, uh, if you didn't notice that stairway you thought you were walking up, it turns out that you're actually falling down a different staircase that you didn't know, you didn't see, because, I don't know. It's a terrible example. Here I am talking about these wonderful illustrations, these timeless illustrations like Indra's net. And here I am just talking about like some stupid like MC Escher staircase where it's like you don't know if you're falling or you're walking up it. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's good to be careful because you have to realize that your experience is your own in many ways, even though you are connected, even though you are part of the wholeness. And that's really a Zen Cohen, you know? It's a, it's a Zen Cohen brother. It's a Zen Cohen, Cohen, however you say it. Because I want to get back to that, too. Uh, it's, it's something I went over on my live stream. And so if somebody happened to hear that, I'm just, I'm pretty much saying the exact same thing in the exact same words. But, you know, I've been... I've decided to start calling the coronavirus the coronavirus. And, and in this episode, it's actually gotten even shorter. It's now the coronavi. Uh, but I decided to start calling it the coronavirus. And people might hear that and think, oh, you're making a joke about something really serious. And I would say, yeah, I am. I think it's a lot healthier to make a joke about something very serious than to give it too much reverence or fear. I'm so scared of the coronavirus that I can't possibly mispronounce that word that we invented for it. That relatively arbitrary word that's a placeholder for this unseen bug that, that hurts us. How dare you mispronounce that and find a little light? I think finding the light in things like that is a much greater solution than fear. 
And it, it, it's no coincidence that hospital staff have a morbid sense of humor. You know, I had that experience when my mom was dying, where I could hear the staff talking very loosely. That When they didn't know that I was in the next room over, they were talking very loosely and even joking around a little bit about my mom's condition, and I was not offended. I could feel myself with the option. I could feel the option to be offended, but I realized the fact that they can joke around about the most difficult biological circumstances that a human being can be in is what makes them able to do what they do every day. And, you know, we've all heard stories about, you know, med students and bringing skeleton hands home and, you know, and, you know, we know the ways that doctors talk when they're within their own peer group. And, in the same way that soldiers ha- can have a morbid sense of humor because they're out there fighting battles. They're out there facing mortality, seeing horrible, gory, fiery things all the time. It's the same thing for you know a hospital where you actually want them to have a morbid sense of humor and you shouldn't be offended if you happen to overhear it, even if it involves your loved one. And that's something hard for people. It's hard to depersonalize yourself in that, especially when you're in an emotional state. And I could feel myself with the option. I could feel, I I knew the option was there to be outraged. But what allowed them to joke about my mom, and it's not like they were sitting there like cracking like one-liners or anything. I could just, there was just a tone. It was more of a tone thing where they just didn't know that I was within earshot. And it was more of a tone, the tone of the conversation than it was like some setup and punchline, you know. Uh, But I could feel the option. But I knew that it wasn't actually an option for me, that it wasn't part of the way I respond to things, at least at this point in my life, not because I'm better than anybody else. I just knew that it would not serve me, it would not serve my mom, and it would not serve the staff who, you know, at no point did I feel like they weren't concerned with my mom's life, you know, so you have to consider that too. What's the bigger picture here? And it's the same thing for joking about the coronavirus, calling it the coronavi, I think, you know, making light of it and, and not pronouncing it right actually takes something away from the power that it has over us right now. And an example that I used in the live stream as well, and I'm sorry to give you the backwash from a Facebook live stream. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm truly sorry. Uh, but uh, I pointed out in that that, you know, I never figured out what the correct pronunciation of necrotizing fasciitis is. Is it necrotizing fasciitis? Or is it pronounced like fascism, like fasciitis or fasciitis? I don't actually know. I heard it said like twice in the hospital, and then I forgot. And you know what? It doesn't matter. You know, I don't hate the I don't hate necrotizing fasciitis, even though it took my mom. But I also don't care to pronounce it right. I'm not going to give it the reverence of a correct pronunciation. And once again, part of that's because it's a placeholder, but part of it is because I just don't care to. While I don't hate this thing, I also don't have any reverence for it either. It just is. 
And when something just is, you can joke about it. And joking might give you some sense of empowerment. It might take something away from the power of that other thing. Or it just might be fun. Calling it the coronavirus, calling it the coronavirus, it's fun for me, you know, and, and that's enough. You know, that's enough for me. It's almost like someone telling you not to get excited about a synchronicity. It's like, yeah, don't, don't be, just because you had a quadruple synchronicity involving a burning bush doesn't mean you should start telling people you're the reincarnation of Moses. It doesn't mean that you should start telling people you're Christ incarnate. Incarnate? That's another one I don't know how to pronounce. Incarnate, incarnate. Um, but, you know, it doesn't, doesn't mean you need to go take it somewhere. It doesn't mean you need to run it all the way to the end zone. Uh, but, you know, there's some flexibility, and you're allowed to be excited. You're allowed to find fun, especially if it's not at anybody else's expense. Especially if you, you know, have a sense of what you're doing. So if you're able to find some fun, if you're able to, you know, you know, you don't want to go to somebody else's mom's funeral and make a joke. You know, you have to be reverent. You, you have to be reverent for other people's reverence. That's important in life. You have to understand what other people's value system is, what other people's value systems are, and be respectful and reverent for their reverence because things matter to people and just because the same thing doesn't matter to you or it matters to you differently doesn't mean that you can dismiss that or override it or challenge it and you should know when it's appropriate to make a joke and that's why I do it in my own realm on my Facebook live stream on my podcast, while I'm staring in the mirror, the mirror, the mirror. And that's an example of the interconnectedness, too, is recognizing that, you know, within my own jewel, within my own jewel, I can say whatever I want and do whatever I want, and nobody has the right to challenge that, because my right to say and do what I want within my own jewel in the greater Indra's net, that right is something that other people need to respect. They need to have reverence for my reverence, and my reverence happens to be irreverent. They need to be reverent toward my irreverence, because it turns out my irreverence is also a form of reverence for something else. And I also need to do the same for them. And that is an example of the interconnectivity. And it's something that people are recognizing, like I, I almost got into before I derailed myself. It's something that people are very vividly aware of right now with the biological interconnectedness between people, not exposing yourself so that you don't further expose, you know, not exposing yourself to the virus because you might then expose it to somebody else or a group of people. You know, it's what everybody's talking about. I don't, I don't need to explain that to you. Um, but, you know, people are having this really clear... People are probably having a lot of epiphanies right now about our biological interconnectedness. And even though it's something we're all aware of, something right now is being activated in people. 
But it's something that's illustrated in Indra's net. It's illustrated on the internet. You know, it's something that we see all over, all the time, everywhere. It's the wholeness. Right now, people are vividly aware of the wholeness. And it's focused on our material existence. And that's okay. That's what we that's the mundane part of our life. Our lives. You know, the the material existence is our bodies and our bodies potentially getting sick and our sick bodies potentially spreading that sickness to other bodies. So we have this very physical interconnectedness that we're we are all vividly aware of right now. And it can take situations like this to Take something that you already kind of know, because we all know that. We all know how interconnected our biology is. We all know how interconnected our material life is. But it can take something like this to really activate that, to really give you a sensation or a feeling to go along with that knowledge. And that's what we would call an epiphany. So I think people are having a certain biological epiphany right now. But I'm interested to see what happens beyond that. And there's a reason why I'm thinking a lot about mental health, spiritual health, and the human soul right now. There's a reason why those are the ideas that I'm riffing on, and partly because I'm always fucking riffing on them. Partly because I never shut up about them these days. But part of it's also because those are my greater concerns right now. Because once the virus has come and gone, and maybe it will, maybe it won't, uh, but once this is off our... Once we're on a different page one way or another... It's going to be that larger interconnectivity, the stuff that's not as visible, the stuff that's not biological. And of course, you know, it's hard to separate the psychic from the biological. It's hard to separate the, it's hard to sep. you can't separate anything because there is a wholeness to it. There is an interconnectivity to everything. And it's really easy to sound like some raving teenager on his first mushroom trip when you talk about this stuff. Uh, but it, you really it, it, you you find out that you can't separate anything from anything, and even though I'm like, well, everybody's very they're having these biological epiphanies. Well, I'm curious if they have a soul epiphany. Um, the reality is, a biological epiphany is a soul epiphany too. But I'm just curious where it all goes. I'm curious what ideas are going to come out of all this, and I know they won't be completely new. You know, I know while there is a lot of newness and there will be new newness to come, in the same way Indra's net is this ancient way of explaining something that I experienced as a teenager, you know, I think the epiphanies that come out of this are going to be you know, there are going to be things that we can we can look at old writings, we can look at the ideas that have been spinning around the human consciousness forever, and we're going to see them. Whatever new thoughts that people think, whatever thoughts people have, whatever epiphanies this situation produces in people, we're going to be able to reference them in older material. We know that. We might have new ways of framing them, there might be new decoration to go along with them, but... None of this is new, and that's because the greatest interconnectedness of all, the greatest example of interconnectivity of all, is the old and the new, and that cycle. 
the interconnectedness of time. I feel like I'm, I'm really stumbling through my words here. You got to do a powerful closer. You can't stutter during your closer. Are you closing with a stutter? But you know that's the biggest one of all is the interconnectedness of time. Oh, those people lived thousands of years ago. They don't know what my life is like. They didn't have the, the same model of smartphone that I got. They didn't know what that was like, and they didn't. They didn't know what that was like, just like you didn't know what it was like for them to, you know, their mundane existence is a little bit foreign to you, just like your mundane existence is foreign to them. But things weren't as different as you think they are. The sensations and the feelings may very well have been the same. I personally think they were. I think the sensations and experiences people had were very much the same, which is why you can reference old material and see Indra's net. Oh, that's something that people always experienced. That's something that people always... Something was activated in people, and they realized how that interconnectivity worked. They realized that within every jewel was reflected every other jewel, and that your jewel in turn reflected on every other jewel. Someone realized that, just like you can realize that. So the sensations, the feelings, the experiences, those are universal. Those are whole, regardless of time, circumstances, you know, circumstance, any other variable you can throw into the mix. There is a wholeness that connects all time, you know, all life. It connects things that we don't even define as living to us right now. And now I'm back to that trip in teenager mode. But these are things that are universal regardless of the placeholder word that is used. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free. So take.